You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys, Episode 172, Ghost Stories of Brooklyn. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hello there. And welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, who is completely incapable of getting my voice anywhere near as low as Greg's. <laughs> I don't know why it's so gravelly today, but it's perfectly timed for I'll be using it in the service, a Bowery Boys Halloween special. Yes, and this year we are focusing our spooky attention on the borough of Brooklyn, which many people thought that the rents were the only thing scary about Brooklyn these days, but no, there are some very haunted tales. For before gentrification, Brooklyn was plagued with ghostrification. Oh no, you didn't, <laughs> Greg. For this show, we've decided to focus not just on Brooklyn, but all the ghost tales that you're about to hear are all set in the 19th century, which means they take place before Brooklyn became a borough of Greater New York. For those new to the Bowery Boys Halloween tradition, what we do is we take famous legends and documented cases of haunts and other supernatural activities. We then flesh out the historical context of the story so you can enjoy and appreciate these tales and what they say about New York City history without necessarily having to believe in ghosts. Although if you want to believe in ghosts and spooks and spirits, be our guest. These stories represent the many ways that Brooklyn was perceived back then, tales that are symbolic of Brooklyn's transition from a land of mansions and farms to its rapid development before it finally joined New York City in 1898. So because, of course, we are corny as all get out, we have decorated our own studio here. Yes, just so we can set the scene for our own spooky tale. Mm -hmm. um, Greg has brought in some little yellow and orange candy corn spook light um, hanging over the monitor. And big tray of pumpkin-shaped donuts to greet us afterwards. So all aboard the G train. The G for ghost. As we take a ride into Brooklyn's haunted history. <laughs>
that unusual piece of music is from the 1977 horror film called The Sentinel, which is perhaps one of the best-known horror films set in the borough of Brooklyn. Right, Greg. Didn't we sit down um, and spook each other out watching that just last year? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was two years ago because it was when I had just moved to Brooklyn and actually lived near the house that is featured in The Sentinel. So for a spooktacular housewarming... I threw that into the DVD player. So we all watched The Sentinel and then marched right up to Brooklyn Heights. And just to view the house itself. Now, this is one of these films that was made in the wake of The Exorcist in 1973, which combined horror themes into a more urban environment. The plot involved an aspiring fashion model, unsatisfied with Manhattan's boring apartment living, decided that she needed some space and moved to an old brownstone in Brooklyn Heights, The building, which is still there today, is at 10 Montague Terrace on the Brooklyn Promenade. Now, this is basically right at Montague and the Promenade? It's right there on the corner. You can't miss this house. It's one of the most beautiful along the way here. Now, the only residents of the house were her and a blind priest who lived up in the attic. Throughout the following weeks, however, the house was filled with new residents, crazy, weird eccentrics, In truth, all these neighbors were demons, and the house was built over the gateway to hell. Now, this movie is kind of a camp classic. I wouldn't say it's a great horror movie, but it has a lot of great actors like Ava Gardner, Eli Wallach, Burgess Meredith, and Beverly D'Angelo. Not really a genuine scary movie, but I wanted to focus on one... But it's creepy. I mean, it's, it's downright creepy. Very, very creepy. So as an introduction to our ghost stories, I wanted to share one little anecdote about the filming of this movie at 10 Montague Terrace as told by the the director of the film, Michael Winner. Spoiler alert here, but I'm not going to give too much away, but at the end of the film, a wrecking ball is supposed to smash into the house and demolish it and seal up the gateway to hell. They were actually going to use a fake wrecking ball made of rubber, and then we were going to add a bunch of sound effects, and then cut away (laughs) with, like, I don't know, crumbling brick or something. At the time, though, and perhaps understandably, the owner of the house at the time did not give them permission and thought that even even though it was a rubber wrecking ball, it would still damage the house anyway. And besides, she had given them all this leeway to even film here in the first place, that she did not authorize that. So they had to do something funky with the editing, basically. But she had authorized that they film the exterior of the house. Right, right. But because they, she didn't give permission for this, they thought they'd give a little sly payback. And so in the movie, a character actually casually mentions the address of the building, 10 Montague Terrace, which that didn't really happen that often in movies that were unflattering portrayals, mm. you know? They usually never mention the exact location, especially this being a mouth of hell. The thought being that, oh, we'll get back to her. Her house is going to be turned into a tourist attraction here. But flash forward to today, and actually that's kind of a flattering reputation, I think, you know, being part of a famous movie from the 1970s. This house is actually old enough that it stood on this very corner during the events of all the stories that we are about to tell. Stories that were also quite infamous in their day. I know at least my stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to be reading long passages directly from the press. People were obsessed with these wicked tales. So, Tom, for our first story, what area of Brooklyn will we be heading to? Well, I'm going to take us, Greg, to the Mapleton neighborhood of Brooklyn, which might not be a neighborhood that most people are familiar with. It's a little slight neighborhood that's wedged between Borough Park and Bensonhurst in southern Brooklyn on the way to Coney Island. 
In fact, this is the story of a midnight train to terror. Today, Mapleton is a multicultural neighborhood home to a wide range of residents, mostly Jewish, Italian, and Chinese. But a little more than a century ago, in the 1890s, it was mostly fields and farmland, an area passed through by train on the way from Coney Island back to more developed neighborhoods. Let's go to August 5th, 1894, when this was a rather unlikely spot for a suicide. As it was reported in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle the next day on August 6th, 1894, a well-dressed woman of about 30, wearing white and carrying a blue parasol, was out slowly strolling alongside the train tracks near Mapleton Station. She was first noticed by a Benjamin Chamberlain, who managed horse stables near the station. Chamberlain thought that it was odd to see this woman out walking along next to the the train tracks, and he continued to watch her as she kind of walked along, walked along slowly with her parasol along the tracks. She had brown hair, dark green dress, black stockings, and a straw hat that was decorated with small yellow flowers. She disappeared from his view and he got back to work, but five minutes later, he heard a gunshot. He grabbed a boy from the stable and headed over to check out the scene. They found her, lying next to the track, her arm outstretched, with a pistol next to it. She was dead. He fetched the police who came at once and investigated. Other than a purse, which held just $39 and a small wedding ring, there was really nothing else in there, and certainly no other identification. Well, there was a medicine bottle. What kind of medicine did it hold? Well, it held carbolic acid, which was Mm. a regulated uh, medicine at the time. They would have to write down on the bottle the name, the dispensary, and the date that it was filled. This could have been used, of course, to identify the woman, except that she had taken great pains to scratch out the name and the date. She had made sure that she was unknown. They took her to the morgue on Willoughby Street downtown, where the examiner determined that the bullet had killed her instantaneously. More clues came three days later. She was identified as a Miss Margaret Barning, 26 years old, and she lived somewhere on Hanson Place near Flatbush and Atlantic Avenue in a small furnished apartment. She was identified by her sister-in-law, a woman named Helen Barning. Helen's husband, who was this woman's brother, had received an anonymous letter in the mail which included several clippings about the suicide because it was in all the papers. Mm -hmm. And it included a note that said, Mr. Barning, the enclosed slips I thought relate to your sister Maggie. I leave it to you to attend to the matter. I shall do nothing further. So her brother was given all of these clippings of his poor sister's suicide, and it's a terrible thing to get in the mail. Well, I suppose somebody thought that they were doing him a favor, and at least the family could hold a funeral, which they did a few days later on August 10th, five days after her suicide at a funeral parlor on Myrtle Avenue and J Street uh, before she was buried in the family lot off in Jersey City. And it seemed like this was the end of the story. But perhaps Margaret was feeling restless. Saturday, August 10th, 1894, the same day as her funeral, at 1.20 in the morning, the last train of the night from Coney Island was passing through along the same track. It passed Mapleton Station when it slowed down and screeched to a stop between 19th and 20th Avenues, right at the spot where Margaret had shot herself. Here's a quote from Richard Lark, who was the superintendent of the railway, as reported in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. 
We were going very fast because the crowd of picnickers were slow about getting on and had delayed us. We had just passed Woodlawn, the only station between Coney Island and Mapleton, without stopping, and had rounded the curve when Fireman Van Pelt pulled my coat sleeve and pointed ahead out to the left of the track. I saw what seemed to be a tall, white figure. It seemed motionless at first, and you may believe me or not, but I'll take my oath that it was standing, or appeared to be standing, just where last Saturday's suicide occurred. It was tall and shadowy-like. It had the appearance of a substance gradually melting into a filmy, white nothing, and seemed to be covered with a long, white, filmy veil. Two seconds after I saw it, it began moving over toward the railroad track. It moved slowly at first, waving its long, draped arms. I could see distinctly, as we approached nearer, that it motioned to us, gesticulating as one would, trying to stop a train. And so this was the train superintendent, and the, the engineer, a man named Mallon, saw it too, and he was blowing his whistle because he thought that somebody was getting onto the track. And just as the train stopped and the thing got off the tracks, it skimmed along toward the woods, and it seemed to be motioning to, to someone to follow, and it disappeared into the woods. But the entire train saw it. And it wasn't just them, because there were more reports in the Eagle of people seeing the ghost. Again, just after midnight, when a work train was out along the same tracks, when one of the workers, a guy named Mike Kluch, screamed as he pointed to the woods. He had seen a white glowing figure again racing from the field across the tracks and into the woods. Others screamed too, because they saw it too, and they hopped on board the engine and demanded to be taken back to the station. So this now makes two large groups of people who have now seen this very shape, this whatever it is, floating around the tracks here. Right. This wasn't just one person who was delirious. So a few days later, an expedition of scientists convened upon the spot, led by a professor, Edward Drinker Cope of University of Pennsylvania, who tried to lure the ghost out of the field, but nothing showed up. Until two weeks later... On August 29, 1894, when the following short piece appeared in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And I quote, Uh The Mapleton ghost was captured on Monday night by eight young men from Flatbush. The party went down late in the evening and sat near the place waiting for the apparition. They heard groans and shrieks and then saw a white thing approaching them swaying from side to side. Several fired pistols at it and threw clubs, but it never stopped. One of the men tackled the ghost when it got close enough and punched it in the eye, threw it on the ground, and kicked it onto the railroad track. (laughs) Two dark figures were then seen to run off rapidly from behind a clump of bushes. The ghost Hmm. was a wooden cross padded with straw and draped with a white sheet. It worked on a wire strung between the top of the tree to the ground. The apparition was carried off to Flatbush in triumph. (laughs) So, how morbid that whoever these people were who had crafted this elaborate ghost would have chosen the suicide of this poor woman to pull this malicious prank. pull off this hoax, yes. Well, at least the boys of Flatbush got to crack and punch this case for (laughs) us. So that ghost story has, of course, a resolution of flesh and blood. Or of straw and sheep. In in this particular case. But this next tale will not provide such easy explanation. It is, in fact, a unsolved mystery of the Brooklyn Police Department. The name of this story is Who's Knocking at My Door? 
I now turn your attention to a very old and curious house that's still with us today, 136 Clinton Avenue. Today it's landmarked as the Lefferts Laidlaw House. It's in the vicinity of the Fort Greene Clinton Hill neighborhoods in this old brownstone Brooklyn neighborhood. Bulk of the buildings surrounding it were built in the 1850s and 1860s, but this house is much older and quite unlike anything else in the neighborhood. The original building was constructed in 1835, but there were many additions that were completed after that. It's in the Greek Revival temple style. What that basically means is, I mean, you can imagine a Greek temple. Sure. It's almost like a southern style plantation. Um, the building sits back from the street about 40 feet, and the whole yard is surrounded by an old iron gate. And on the porch are, of course, those large white columns that dominate the front of the house. Several prominent residents have lived in this house over the years. Perhaps the most well-known is a man named the Colonel Marshall Lefferts, an engineer and a president of a telegraph company. Now, Lefferts is still a name that's with us today, right? This is an old New York name. Oh, yeah. It's an old... Uh, it traces back to an old Dutch settler who bought land in the region of Flatbush. And the neighborhood today of Lefferts Garden, which is near Prospect Park, honors that particular connection. The house sat uphill from the waterfront. So if you're looking perhaps at a map, you'll notice that this house is very, very close to the edge of the water. And in fact, in this area which was developed in the mid-19th century into the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Over the decades around this house, more land was sold and new buildings constructed. Soon this tranquil little estate was beginning to be hemmed in by new neighbors all around it. By the Civil War, there was so much need for additional housing that 13 Clinton Avenue here began to take on borders, as well as having whole families with servants who lived here. So, with so many people coming in and out over the years, it's difficult to know exactly what was the cause of the particular supernatural events which occurred here in December of 1878. During this particular month, a man named Edward Smith lived here with his wife and two daughters. Well, one day, there was a knock at the door. And so, the servant went to go open the door and see who it was, but there was nobody there. The same thing kept happening the following day, and it kept repeating throughout the evening. And then the day after that, and the day after that, for two weeks, it grew more violent with each passing day. It was as though it were the sound of a large man, his fist furiously rapping against the door. Oh, I was going to suggest that perhaps it was little trickster neighborhood children, but, but it sounds like something with much greater force. Well... The knocking would soon be joined by another sound, the ringing of the new doorbell. It kept ringing again and again. It would be held for almost a minute at a time, and it would soon be followed by the rattling of the door itself. The door would violently shake, as though someone were trying to break their way into the door. Sometimes the doorbell would stop ringing entirely, and the doors on the side of the house and the windows, well, they would start shuddering and rattling wildly, as if there was some sort of force that was about to just pull them off the building entirely. Whatever this force was, it was very prompt, for the knocking would often start around 5 p.m. Um, in the early evening, and then would repeatedly knock and ring and knock and ring until almost midnight. It would be so loud that neighbors down the block 
would clearly hear the sounds and wonder what was going on. Well, three weeks of this went by and was very disturbing, as you can imagine, for everybody in the house. The young girls were afraid to go to sleep, and the wife was trying to urge her husband, Edward, to seek out the help of spiritualists, of mediums who might be able to solve what this entity might be up to. And it seems that there were no shortage of spiritualists in the 1870s to oh, they call could, upon. A dime a dozen. Oh. But he had some more practical ideas of trying to figure out what was going on. One day he began sprinkling flour and ashes along the foot of the door, thinking, of course, it was some troublesome neighborhood kid. Mm -hmm. Well, he would be able to capture the footprints and they'd sort of figure out what was going on. However, after an evening of this vigorous knocking and hellish bell ringing, upon investigation, discovered that the ash had gone undisturbed and that there were no footprints in front of the door. Eventually, he and his servants would actually go outside and stand in the yard for the whole evening just to see, just to figure out what was going on. They would actually stand there and watch as the door began rattling and the sounds were emitted, but there was nothing there causing it. They would see the house shaking? They would see the door shaking. They would see the windows rattling. So uh, after this, I mean, Smith did eventually call for help, but not a medium. He called the police. So enter police captain McLaughlin, who said, quote, Take my word for it. We will capture the ghost if it has flesh and blood and is viable to mortal eyes. So he and his detective and several other police officers were stationed around the house for an entire evening with one officer at every door. And again it came, the knocking and the rattling and the ringing. It all returned stronger than ever. One officer even held the bell mechanism of the doorbell, like kind of tied it together so mm -hmm. it wouldn't ring, but still the bell rang. So officers were stationed in the house the next night as well. The doorbell itself was then muffled with a handkerchief, and Smith declared he would dismantle the doorbell, and if it continued to ring in his own hand, he would destroy it. At that moment, with the police officers scattered throughout the house, there was a terrible sound of shattering. The family ran to the dining room to discover that a window had been smashed open and on the ground lay a brick that had sat behind the house in the alleyway. So basically, in order for this brick to travel and smash the window, it would have had to have been thrown with amazing force. And yet, disregarding all rules of physics, it sat right there under the window as though within the house itself, it lost momentum and just fell to the floor. Regarding the brick incident, according to the New York Times, quote, this was the most serious demonstration the invisible agency had yet made and can only be accounted for on the theory that the ghost, if ghost it was, wished to show its contempt for the Brooklyn police. Wow, so among other things, this is now getting covered by the New York Times, so well, yeah. everybody's talking about it. Everybody is talking about this, certainly in the neighborhood, but beyond. Literally, each evening, hundreds of people would gather outside of the building, or at least outside those iron gates, to witness whatever this horrible disruption was. It was reported on during the day by at least three different newspapers, which I find incredible. Back to the Daily Eagle, mm -hmm. uh, which you've quoted. I shall quote them here also. Quote, the neighborhood is a most respectable one, and a ghost could not select a more quiet locality for its operations. So a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but there mm -hmm. was no explanation over what was going on. Eventually, 
spiritualists did arrive at the front door offering up their services. And one woman even came and offered to hold a seance there on the front lawn. Now, of course, if this were a horror movie at this moment, the family would just move out of the house and never look back. Why did they stick around? Well, I would have been out of there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice house. Smith, for his part, refused to be deterred by this. And actually, even the boarders who lived in the house were like, well, it's haunted, but I'm sure the rent was reduced by that point. And, and it was like, it's a nice place to live. The captain, Captain McLaughlin, left this experience and would later claim it single-handedly determined for him the existence of ghosts with malicious intent to disturb the living. To this day, it is a documented, unsolved mystery of the Brooklyn Police Department. There was an officially filed police report and to this day remains unsolved. So wait, the house is still there and... And this yes. is still an open case? We really don't know who was haunting it? No, I mean, eventually it went away, but many speculated that this secret to this particular malicious ghost, the secret lied in the house next door, 140 Clinton Street, which is also a house that's still standing to this day. It was claimed that during the 1870s, there were a series of seances that occurred in this house over the past few years, and perhaps it was these spirits that were lingering on. Well, that doesn't seem like a very satisfying explanation. Well, Tom, I have my own theories here as to what might have gone on. Do tell. Well, all the way down Clinton Avenue, so if you keep following it and it hits the Brooklyn Navy Yard there, well, the Brooklyn Navy Yard sits in an area of the East River called Wallabout Bay. And during the Revolutionary War, many thousands of Americans and those fighting on the side of George Washington were kept in prison ships here, and thousands of them died from torture and from starvation and disease. For many, many decades during the 19th century, these bodies were incurred in a crypt near the Brooklyn Navy Yard before they were eventually moved on up to the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene Park, and still, that's still there today as well. This house, 136 Clinton Avenue, is situated very close to that monument. So perhaps it was one of those dislodged, tragic spirits just trying to get somebody's attention. That's spooky, Greg. But we have another ghost who's going to come a-knockin' after this break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And now, back to the show.
So, Tom, where are you taking us for our third story? Well, Greg, I'm taking us back to Coney Island, in fact, in the summer of 1892, so just two years before the haunting that I told you about before on mm-hmm. the train tracks. Mm-hmm. Very near uh, Mapleton, but further south in Coney Island itself. So in the 1890s, Coney Island, as we discussed many years ago in our Coney Island (laughs) podcasts, Mm -hmm. because we have a two-parter on Coney Island, if you'd like to find it in the archives, the 1890s were the heyday of Coney Island when the city's population was exploding and taking refuge on hot summer days in the beaches of Coney Island. But who knew that spirits, too, desired a beachy summer getaway? For this is my tale of the ghostly guest in Room 30. That was an incredible setup, Tom. So we are in... Thank you, I rehearsed it. (laughs) We're in a famous accommodation in the 1890s, one of these great big hotels. I didn't make that explicit, just in the title, that it's the ghostly ghost in Room 30... I should have added that, yes, this story Mm -hmm. takes place not just in Coney Island, but in one of the big grand hotels of Coney Island, because as we've discussed before, Coney Island wasn't just some place that you went for the day. Coney Island was a place that you took boats to or the train at this point to, and you stayed sometimes for several days, maybe the whole week or maybe the weekend in one of the resort's grand hotels. And things were pretty grand in the 1890s in Coney Island. However, things were downright depressed and dilapidated at the Oceanic Hotel, which was a 500-room hotel that sat back in a grove from Brighton Beach. In the late 1870s, it it had indeed been grand and been very fashionable with some, some of the city's most famous guests checking in for the week. But now in 1892... It was almost completely abandoned. So I want you to imagine this 500-room hotel. Boarded up? Well, actually, it wasn't boarded up, and that's one of the problems. Many of its doors and windows were not only open to the elements, but they were open to unwanted visitors. In fact, having fallen on, on hard times, the owners of the Oceanic Hotel had parceled up Uh, these rooms into furnished apartments. But those had failed to attract many renters, and the hotel, it fell into a funk. It was surrounded by weeds, its upkeep had been abandoned, and many of the doors were just sort of propped open. There were so many much nicer hotels at this point throughout Coney Island and Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach that this place just simply couldn't catch up, it sounds like. Well, to be fair, its unpopularity could partially be explained by a murder that had taken place there in the mid-1880s. That will put a damper on summer activities. Reservation volume. (laughs) Yes, for up in room number 30, there had been a murder in the 1880s, and ever since then, strange things had been heard and strange things had been felt along the long corridors and the staircases, now abandoned. So, Greg, if you'll allow me now to read once again from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from the August 27th edition, 1892. This is in the story, A Ghost is Haunting the Old Oceanic Hotel. They knew how to get to the point of the story. (laughs) It's very clear what was about to be read. Yes. And here the author of the piece 
explains the creepy things happening in the hotel. Footsteps made by no human being have echoed down the broad old corridor. Unearthly groans have fallen on the ears of trembling listeners, and men returning late from the beach have been confronted in dark passages by uncanny presences which made their blood run cold. So what happened here then was that the police chief, uh, a certain John McCain, that's M-C-K-A-N-E. Yes, John McCain was a late 19th century political boss, a Tammany Hall boss that basically ruled the amusement areas of Coney Island. And his area was not amused by this ghost, (laughs) and he had certainly had enough. So he had determined to give this ghost... Uh, to teach this ghost a lesson. So he called for some volunteers and got officers Wistens and Special Officer Gallagher together to take clubs and go to the Oceanic Hotel where they were supposed to just wait around for the ghost to show up. Back to the story, quote, The families in the Oceanic, now remember there were 500 rooms, the families were Mr. and Mrs. Aaron Lewis, who keep an ice cream saloon at the beach, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Alonzo Riker, Mrs. Sherwood, chief ballet dancer at Payne's Fireworks, Mr. and Mrs. Pearson, and Mr. and Mrs. Gregory, and Mrs. Smith. Those are all the people living in this giant old hotel. Sounds almost like a game of Clue here. When the trouble first began about a week ago, Mr. and Mrs. Lewis left the place. Mr. and Mrs. Pearson moved two days ago, and that same night, Mr. and Mrs. Riker were kept awake by the sound of heavy footsteps over their heads in room 30, where the murder occurred. The footsteps moved in a circle all night. When daylight came, the Rikers moved out. Mrs. Sherwood, Mrs. Smith, and the Gregories are now the only ones left in a house of 500 rooms. One of these women, who did not want her identity revealed, said, When I have been lying in bed, with the light burning, the heavy footsteps have passed right along in front of me, and I have seen nothing. I have shouted, and the footsteps have stopped, and begun again louder than ever. They led straight to the window and stopped there. I have picked up a pistol and run to the window, but could see nothing. A sound like people beating carpets is sometimes heard. Often a person, or whatever it is that walks through the house, knocks three times on the walls. Always three times. I would not stay here a week for anything. So the Oceanic is being rapidly vacated by its remaining remaining, women. Yeah, so there's only just a couple people here left, right? A handful of ladies who are still holding down the fort. So these two detectives and the reporters did look around. They searched everything. They searched the backyard. They searched the outer houses, the the cottage in the backyard. They searched all of the doors and the windows, which they found to be loose and open. So anybody could just come in and lift it up and walk in. And they said that, well, this seems like it would be a paradise for homeless men in the area Mm -hmm. who could just come in and live there, and maybe they were a cause of some of this mysterious sounds that they were hearing. Hiding in one of these rooms, maybe even room 30 itself. They they listened for hours, and they finally did hear some footsteps coming from a certain part of the house, but when they, they raced up to inspect the room where they heard the footsteps from, there was nothing in there. And some of the other tenants there also reported hearing the same thing at the same time. So they bore witness to the same thing. They weren't crazy. Someone was in there, but they all heard it. The detectives and the reporters and the guests in the hotel all heard it the same night. 
They left the next morning. Once the sun came up, they, they didn't have any proof to show, but they had heard it and they planned to continue the search the next day, which they didn't again, didn't find anything. Just like my last ghost story, I like that there's a bunch of like police officers running around. Am I, what are they even looking for? Ghosts? <laughs> right, it's just too bad that Don Knotts himself wasn't there playing one of the officers. And the Scooby gang, yes. Well, sure enough, about three or four weeks later, on October 23rd, 1892, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle published an article called Caught the Ghost at Last. So they caught the ghost. Now, hold still. Okay. Mm-hmm. Quote, the ghost that for years has haunted the Oceanic Hotel and raised the hair of the people of West Brighton has been trapped. During the last season, several guests deserted the old hotel summarily declaring that they had heard supernatural sounds. Since the close of the season, the huge building has been inhabited only by John Delaney, a milk dealer, and the family of one of his employees. The other day, the milkman heard footfalls and groaning from the upper floors of that deserted building, cautiously creeping up the stairs. He captured the ghost in the act of groaning. The groans were produced by nothing more supernatural than the limb of a huge willow tree in juxtaposition <laughs> with a window blind, the rusty hinges of which gave out doleful sounds with every gust of wind. The tapping of the loose shutter produced a very good imitation of a footstep. Okay. I'm sorry to... But there was a... The woman claimed that she heard three repetitive knockings, right? Each... And this article points out that that was the tapping of the shutter. Well, I'm a little skeptical of that resolution, but that's but I it assume, does seem tidy, doesn't it? It does seem a little tidy, like maybe they were they just wanted to get rid of these ghost stories and try to regain business at the Oceanic. I don't think we'll ever know what happened in room thirty. So we'll close the door to the room of the Oceanic Hotel and we'll head towards our final destination, which perhaps not to your surprise, Tom will be a cemetery, or rather, near a cemetery. For this tale is called The Ghost of Knickerbocker Avenue. Now, we're headed not to Brooklyn's famous Greenwood Cemetery, although I suspect there are a few ghost tales to unearth over there. I'm actually taking us to a collection of burial places that are situated at the Brooklyn and Queens border, basically the eastern edge of the neighborhood of Bushwick. There are a cluster of graveyards very close around this area. And it's interesting, it's non-denominational cemeteries next to those that are associated with 19th century churches and synagogues. So when we've talked about cemeteries in the past, it's been mostly in terms of a cemetery behind a church, right? Cemeteries giving final resting places to to members of that congregation. Right. By the 1830s, however, you had what were called marble cemeteries, and there were a couple of them in what's today's East Village, that were burial places that were for wealthy families, but not necessarily of a particular religion. But that's the 1830s, and at some point, well, you just can't have like a large, unoccupied area of land in the middle of a growing city like New York. And, you know, people are always going to be dying. So they had to come up with a, a, like a new arrangement. And sure enough came the idea of the rural cemetery or the garden cemetery. They were developed under both of those names. The first one, of course, being Greenwood Cemetery in 1838. 
A rural cemetery was a well-manicured estate, a prototype of a modern civic park. It predated many of New York's parks, with the idea being, well, if you're going to have to leave the city for the day, you might as well just make the most of it and have a picnic. In 1849, the state of New York passed the Rural Cemetery Act, which actually allowed people to set up these cemeteries as for-profit businesses. A few years later, burials were then banned from Manhattan, and in most cases, thousands of bodies that were buried there were exhumed and then transferred to cemeteries here in Brooklyn and Queens. There was still so much land where you could develop these types of things. And so as a result, you have these cluster of cemeteries that are on the Brooklyn-Queens border, the largest being the Cemetery of the Evergreens, which sits one half in Brooklyn and the other in Queens. and was organized in 1849. The border of this cemetery is where my ghost story is set. So it's fall of 1894. So around the same time as all of the, uh, 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 most, uh, of, most of these, yeah. yes. This is the same year as the ghostly apparition um, next to the train tracks. Mm-hmm. Same year. So these cemeteries here were already in operation. These cemeteries right next to Bushwick. But the area around it was less developed. There were many vacant lots that had been carved up, but nothing had been built on them yet. So imagine that sort of an odd, empty field uh, mm. that had you know, streets carved into it next to the cemeteries. So on a crisp night with a full moon and everything to the east, if you looked over to the east, and just these dark shapes of tombstones and mausoleums. How the New York Times described it, quote, it was rocky, bleak, lonesome. The streets are only partly cut through, and at night, the darkness is intense, unquote. Due to the multitude of graves that are here, that are on, that are in these cemeteries, almost more than anywhere else, there are these strange legends of foggy specters that dart from the cemetery and float down to those new housing developments that are around the area. Of these many stories, one spirit stands out from the rest and was first seen in the vicinity of Knickerbocker Avenue. So one night there was a group of young women heading home from whatever they were doing that night. They were walking down the street when they came upon a horrible apparition, the ghost of a disheveled, barefoot woman wearing, well, she was wearing very little, scantily attired, quote, loose gauze drapery. When they approached this this woman, I mean, they didn't know, if it was, they thought it was a real woman. They approached the woman, she began writhing in hysterics and shrieking and moaning and her arms flailing and undulating. The women, of course, terrorized, ran back home, and they told the stories to their families. So the following night, five men, who were all happened to be brothers of the group of women, well, they, they headed out because they wanted to see this mysterious, ghostly woman. They armed themselves with revolvers, and they set out down Knickerbocker Avenue, headed towards that vacant lot where they had seen this ghostly presence. Well, after an hour of fruitless searching, it seemed they would never find anything, when then, all of a sudden, there she appeared. She literally rose up out of the ground, her arms wildly waving and undulating in an unbodily manner, and let out a blood-curdling, chilling scream. The men dropped their guns. They ran back home. They were reportedly so afraid that they did not feel safe until, quote, they had jumped into bed and pulled the quilts and comforters over their heads, unquote. Now that there were two groups of people that had seen this otherworldly entity that got 
people riled up even more. So the following night, the local neighborhood sent out a search party of 200 people. Wow. Okay, just imagine 200 people creeping along through the streets looking for a ghost headed into this darkened area and around where that particular vacant lot was. So they gathered here, these 200 people. They waited and waited well past midnight. But this time, the ghostly lady failed to appear. Ghosts don't exactly pop up when you when you want them to, especially if there's like 200 people with like torches. I don't... I don't I Sometimes don't, <laughs> they don't like a crowd. No, yeah. no, no. So they thought the whole thing was a big hoax. But one member of that party still thought that this presence existed. It was a man named Peter Wolfel. He appeared to be a prominent resident, Peter Wolfel. And the following evening, he headed down to the vacant lot himself. Okay, so... That sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Without 200 people. So an hour later, 1 a.m., he came back home. Woefully. Woefully. Peter's face was white as a sheet. He reported seeing the spirit in the vacant lot, quote, performing a serpentine dance. He was so petrified when he saw this, this, this moving figure that he couldn't even move from his spot. He was like a stone until the spirit floated up to him, got into his face, and issued a demonic cry, and then, poof, disappeared. So this, as you can imagine, got people reignited to go find this horrible creature and form another gigantic ghost party, an even larger one. But they had to wait a couple nights for the following two evenings. The land was so thick with fog fog that was pouring out down from the cemeteries and covering all the vacant lots. So much fog, all these wisps, mysterious wisps coming from the cemeteries, that it was impossible to see if a a ghost was even there at all. But then on November 22nd, the weather was a little bit better, a search party of 300 men headed out to go look for this spirit. Like many of our stories we've told, they were assisted by several police officers, including one Captain William Kitzer and a reporter from the New York Times who humorously documented the action. You've got men, police officers, reporters, and guns, I'm taking uh, Oh, not just guns. Oh, they, they were armed with revolvers, of course. Of but course. some of them had army swords, which they brandished as they marched down the street, as though they were heading for war. One man was dressed in an ill-fitting suit of armor <laughs> with a sword slung over that his shoulder. That would make it hard to get away from the ghost in. <laughs> I don't know what he was was planning on on doing with this armor, but I'm sure he looked very imposing. So this was an incredible scene going on, just a tiny bit foggy, with hundreds of people scouring these sandy lots at the foot of the cemeteries. Among the mob was a true skeptic, of course, um, a police officer named Matthew Holliday. Quote, I don't believe these here ghost stories. I'll tell you what I think it is. It's the whiskey. The worst whiskey that's sold on the island is sold right here. It will make a man see anything. Ghosts, snakes, or anything else. Well, that's one skeptic, but many people still believe this ghost was here. The mob soon broke into several smaller parties, and they set out into the cemeteries directly to see maybe that's where the spirit lived. Throughout midnight and late into the night, men would cry, It's a ghost! But then, of course, they would... They would run over there and it would be nothing. But some point late in the evening, someone saw in another vacant lot adjacent to where the spirit had been originally seen, somebody saw a figure in white floating 
over the area, back and forth, grand gestures, quite different from the scantily dressed woman. It was a thick, white, solid form, quite horrifying against the blackness of the night. The mob, which probably at this point was a little drunk... And sword happy. (laughs) And sword happy, rushed towards the ghost, and the police quickly following after them. So everyone flooding towards this vacant lot, towards the spirit. They got close enough, and they began picking up rocks, and they started throwing rocks at the ghost violently. The ghost, the figure, jerked around and threw up its arms. Suddenly it seemed as if its whole body began convulsing, and then all of a sudden the ghost screamed, Stop! Stop! Well, the sheet was thrown off to reveal it was just that old neighborhood troublemaker Bauer up to his old antics disguised as a ghost. <laughs> but he was not... Wait. <laughs> that old neighborhood troublemaker. <laughs> this is a Scooby-Doo episode. That is a Scooby-Doo episode. He was inebriated and just thought he was going to give his friends a, a real scare. But when interviewed, he claimed that he was not the real spirit, that he'd only thrown on that sheet just for a little fun. The spirit was still out there, but his little joke, that whole, that whole scene, you know, throwing rocks at Bauer, diffused the evening pretty much and everyone went home. Now, over the next following days, there were smaller search parties who went out in search of the lady spirit, but she was never again seen or discovered again. Today, of course, in that neighborhood, there are no more vacant lots. There are there were many, many residences that were actually built here in the following decade on these very ghost-haunted spots. If you walk around there today, you'll notice uh, something that might be a little disturbing, considering there may be ghosts here. There's a local public school located right near this spot. And in fact, on the very spot where I believe that the ghost made her first appearance, that vacant lot. Mm -hmm. I walked around there and tried to find that exact place where she might have made these appearances where the gauzily dressed specter, the scantily clad spirit, had performed her serpentine dance. On that very spot today sits a laundromat. So if you're if you're at this laundromat and you're you're washing your under things there and a piece of lingerie, gauzy lingerie goes missing, well, perhaps it was the ghost of Knickerbocker Avenue. And thus ends our cycle of stories. <laughs> our spin cycle of stories on the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll actually have links to various newspapers that reported on all these events. All of them reportedly occurred and were documented in the press of the day. Check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and also join us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. So that ends our spooky survey into a few selected ghost stories of Brooklyn, New York. Tom, I think it's time for us to eat our pumpkin donuts and to fade... What's left of them? (laughs) We've been nibbling on them a little bit throughout the stories here, and dim our Halloween lights for the end of another... Halloween podcast. For our next episode, Tom will be traveling in Europe, so I have a special surprise in store for our next show. I'm very interested to see how this will turn out. It's a, a little bit of an experiment, but I'll, I hope it will be very entertaining and informative. I plan to tune in from whichever <laughs> cheap sleep I'm, I'm tucking into that evening, Greg. So thank you for joining us here for our annual tradition. Have a great New York week. 
whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm.